Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. You won't find Wineville, California anywhere on a map. The Southern California town certainly existed at one time, although it abruptly vanished in 1930, replaced suddenly by Miraloma. What had happened was the Wineville Chicken Coop murders, crimes so heinous that the townspeople couldn't bear to be associated with the name Wineville any longer. The case of the Wineville Chicken Coop murders is filled with so many bizarre twists, turns, and testimonies that even movie screenwriter J. Michael Straczynski, who was investigating the murders for a film based on the events, could hardly believe it was actually true. After reading the story in the Los Angeles City Archives, he figured, this can't be real, this has to be a mistake. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. Also, I am now giving away Weird Darkness merchandise every week, so be sure to listen to the end of the podcast to find out how you can be next week's winner. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Mysterious, loud, booming noises have been heard all over the country without explanation, but now it has become even creepier as some men in black have been poking around, asking questions, and interviewing witnesses. A convicted murderer and suspected serial killer lurks in the frames of the horror classic film The Exorcist. A mysterious old man shows up at the scene of two auto accidents, 20 years apart. The older citizens in Durango, Mexico tell of a frightening entity known as the La Ilorona. A woman tells of seeing a dead relative on her way out to do her weekly grocery shopping. Drenched in sun and perched above the glistening water of Tampa Bay, the Sunshine Skyway Bridge doesn't look haunted. However, appearances can be deceiving. The rapid decline of traffic on Route 66 sounded the death knell for hundreds of businesses, including Diamond's Restaurant, but that has not stopped the undead from continuing to frequent the place. Die without being married and you could be doomed to haunt the world forever, at least according to an ancient Chinese custom. And thus, ghost weddings became a reality. What was intended as a romantic getaway under the stars turned into a frightful getaway from a horrible sound. And a string of murders in Wineville, California caused the town not only to change its name, but inspired an Angelina Jolie movie. We'll have that story first. Now bolt your doors. 
lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Weird Darkness continues in just a moment. So I've been sleeping on a MyPillow for a few weeks now, and I've been telling you that my sleep has improved drastically, so what are you waiting for? When are you going to jump on board and start experiencing the kind of restorative sleep you need in your life? Are you waiting for a better offer? Well, your wait's over, because if you go to MyPillow.com right now, you can take advantage of the MyPillow 4-pack offer. It's two premium MyPillows and two go-anywhere pillows and half off. Just go to MyPillow.com, click the four-pack special, and then use my promo code WEIRD. The murders of several young boys – the true number of victims is still unknown – in Southern California from 1926 to 1928, captivated and disgusted the nation, generating such an extreme amount of negative publicity that the town where they had occurred took the drastic step of changing its name. The gruesome crimes first came to light in 1928, when police found the headless body of a male teenager in a ditch. The case might have remained unsolved and forgotten had the authorities not received a strange phone call from the United States Consul in Canada that set off an incredible series of events. The Consul had been tipped off about the chicken coop murders by 19-year-old Jesse Clark, who had returned to the country in a panic after a visit to her brother in California. 15-year-old Sanford Clark had been working on the chicken ranch of his 19-year-old cousin Gordon Stewart Northcott. Jessie had been concerned that something seemed strange about her brother's letters and made a trip down to visit him. Despite Northcott's efforts to make sure the siblings were never alone together, Jessie managed to wheedle the truth out of her brother. Their cousin had not only been sexually abusing him, but was also a murderer. Sanford asked his sister if she had recalled reading in the papers about a little boy that was kidnapped, Walter Collins. Collins had vanished in March 1928 on his way to see a movie. Sanford then went on to say Northcott had kept Walter at the ranch for a little over a week and had killed the boy when people started searching for him. He also told his sister about the murders of the two other boys, as well as a Mexican ranch hand Stewart had shot and decapitated. A terrified Jesse fled back to Canada and told the American consul the whole story who alerted the Los Angeles Police Department. Although Gordon Northcott and his mother, Sarah Louise Northcott, tried to flee, they were apprehended in Canada and were extradited to the United States for trial. In the meantime, police at the ranch were finding human remains buried in limestone beneath the chicken coop. Northcott confessed to only one murder, that of the Mexican teenage ranch hand Alvin Gathea believed to be the boy the police had found in the sack. In a desperate attempt to protect her son, Northcott's mother claimed to have killed young Walter Collins, whose body was never found. During the trial, she additionally claimed that her murderous son was the product of an incestuous relationship between her husband and their daughter, 
though this was never proven. Northcott was found guilty of the murders of three of the boys, sentenced to death, and hanged in 1930. His mother was found guilty of murdering Walter Collins and given a life sentence. But the strange story of the chicken coop murders did not end there. Although Walter had disappeared in March of 1928, in August of that year, another boy claiming to be Walter appeared in Illinois. After paying for his travel expenses, Christine Collins, Walter's mother, went back to the LAPD claiming this stranger was not her son. At that point, the police were under enormous pressure to solve the kidnapping, and Captain J.J. Jones, who was heading the investigation, was less than thrilled that the case was reopened. Although Walter's dental records proved that this new boy was indeed an imposter, the LAPD still tried to rid themselves of the inconvenience of a grieving mother by having Christine committed to a psychiatric ward. By this time, her story had garnered tremendous media attention, and when she was released from the hospital five days later, the public had rallied around her. The imposter would later confess that he was not Walter Collins, but had only impersonated him because he wanted to get into the movies in Hollywood. By that time, it was too late for her son. Although Jones was suspended and a judge awarded Collins more than $10,000, the Northcotts claimed that Walter was long dead. Collins' story would inspire the Clint Eastwood film Changeling, starring Angelina Jolie. So the little imposter did get his way. He made it into the movies in Hollywood. At least his story did. This happened to me a few days ago. I was in a terrible, stupid car accident. I totaled my car. As luck would have it, my oldest didn't go through the windshield window. He was buckled. We were fighting, just dumb stuff, looking back on it, but after coming off a few months of heavy stress, it seemed important at the time. It was bad. Anyhow, no one was hurt too badly. 911 was called, a few people came to see if we were okay, and then I felt a hand on my shoulder. Hey, it's all going to be okay. Help is coming. You're going to be all right. It was an old guy, scraggly, unkempt, no shoes. He disappeared as the emergency people got there within seconds of this man's arrival. My oldest remember seeing him. The other two in the car don't, though. Twenty years ago, I was in a head-on accident on a busy street, and I kid you not, this same guy came up to me and did the same thing. Twenty years ago. And he said the same thing. It was the same guy. Everything was fine then as well, eventually. It actually changed my entire life that day. It got me to a place I belonged. I think this was just a huge reminder to step back, take a breath, love those you have, and appreciate all around me. Life is way too short. If I could thank this man, I would a thousandfold.
On July 10, 1949, the New Diamonds restaurant opened west of St. Louis at U.S. Highway 50 and Route 66. It replaced the original, which had burned down in 1947. The new incarnation of the roadside stop had seating for nearly 400 people – a coffee shop, cafeteria, curio shop, drive-in cafe, bus ticket office, travel company, popcorn stand, and filling station. It was estimated that 75 buses regularly stopped at the Diamonds restaurant, bringing the place at least 5,000 customers a day. But sadly, it wouldn't last. The demise of Route 66 sounded the death knell for the Diamonds. It became one of the sites along the old highway for which only memories remain. Along Route 66 today are abandoned diners, broken and faded neon signs for businesses that have long since vanished, and even abandoned motor courts that seem to still be waiting for the road-weary traveler to check in for the night. And in many of those now empty places, the ghosts of the past remain too. The Diamonds had a unique history on Route 66, boasting three versions of the restaurant and two different locations, the original of which became known for its hauntings. The Diamonds restaurant was once a Missouri fixture on the Mother Road. The restaurant started as a fruit and vegetable stand in 1927. An enterprising young man named Spencer Groff opened the stand with the dream to get his share of the money that was pouring into places that opened along the new highway, US 66. He did so well that the stand was eventually expanded into a restaurant and mercantile store that he called The Diamonds. The reason for the name was simple. It had been designed into the shape of a baseball diamond. Groff sold gas from the Phillips 66 pumps and rented 25 cabins for tourists across the road. The eatery, which gained fame as the world's largest roadside restaurant, offered dozens of tables and three U-shaped lunch counters with attendants. The menu ranged from burgers to turkey dinners with all the trimmings. In time, it became a regular stop for all cross-country bus services, literally delivering customers right to the Diamond's front door. In 1947, the place was devastated by fire, and Groff decided that he had had enough. He turned over the business to one of his longtime employees who rebuilt the place. It reopened in July 1949, and it wasn't long, thanks to Route 66, before the Diamonds was thriving again. It stayed busy into the 1960s. Unfortunately, though, the completion of the interstate brought about the end of the old highway. But the owners weren't ready to give up just yet. After Interstate 44 was opened in 1968, a new Diamonds was built near the interstate. The owners of the Diamonds picked up everything – lock, stock, and vintage sign – and moved the business two miles east to cash in on sales from the new interstate. But it did not survive. In fact, all that remains of the new Diamonds is the old sign. The building has long since been torn down. Ironically, though, the original building still stands even today. After the Diamonds departed for its more lucrative location near the interstate, the place became the Tri-County Truck Stop. It was a couple of miles off the beaten path, but in those days, before newer and more accessible truck stops opened along the interstate, the former Diamonds was the only game in town. 
what was once a must-stop on Route 66 became an all-hours restaurant that catered to truckers, the late-night bar crowd, and seedy drifters who were floating from one place to the next. The second floor of the building was renovated into sleeping rooms and showers, and while this had been done as a service for truckers, it soon attracted hitchhikers and prostitutes. Robberies and violence became common, and it was frequented by police officers making arrests and breaking up fights. It was in the early 1970s that stories of ghosts first began to emerge from the Tri-County truck stop. Employees and customers began telling of being touched by unseen hands, hearing voices, and seeing shadowy figures that shouldn't have been there. Over the course of the next two decades, eerie accounts were told of inexplicable sights and sounds in the basement and seeing apparitions in dimly lit rooms. Objects moved about on their own. Lights and appliances turned on and off, and staff members told of frequent sightings of a man wearing a plaid shirt and tan pants that would appear and disappear at random. Others claimed to see the spirits of a man and woman that were covered in blood, leading some to believe that this may have been the spectral reenactment of a murder from the building's notorious past. No records exist to say that anything like that ever happened, but the reputation of the truck stop in the late 1960s and early 1970s makes just about anything possible. And stories got even wilder. Rampant tales of ghosts in the 1990s had local residents claiming that the ghosts of the building were actually spilling out of the place and haunting other nearby places. They claimed that ghosts had infiltrated their homes and that a new incident had started to occur on Highway 100. According to some, a hitchhiker was now being picked up on that surrounding roadway who would vanish out of the car without opening the door. He always asked to be dropped off at the Tri-County truck stop before he disappeared. In time, competition from more modern, safer truckers finally closed the doors of the Tri-County truck stop and its restaurant. The place remains today, a ghost in its own right, a vacant and abandoned shell of what it once was. The windows have been boarded over and the excitement of yesterday is now long gone. One has to wonder what will happen to the place now that time has passed it by. And what will become of the ghosts? This happened to me several years ago after the death of my aunt. I was heading out with my boyfriend to do our weekly shopping. We tended to go on Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. before the majority of shoppers were out of bed. As we headed towards the store, we hit a red light and had to wait. About my aunt, we had never been particularly close. I remember her mainly from Christmas parties and family events. She had died of cancer several years before this incident took place. As we waited at the red light, I was looking around. A car pulled up to our right to also wait at the red light. I looked over and it was my aunt in the driving seat. She didn't look at me, but I knew it was her. The light changed. We drove off. 
Now, I understand that this could have been a doppelganger or my imagination, but I know that it was her. She was in the driving seat of the car that pulled up at that red light. Has anyone else experienced anything like this? What happened in this story scared the bejesus out of me, and seven years later I'm getting creepy goosebumps trying to write it. Probably it won't seem scary to listeners, but for us, at the time, it was very unnatural and frightening. If anyone could explain this or has experienced it, I would be grateful for your comments. My fella is quite the romantic. He took me hiking on one of his favorite trails on Mount St. Helens in Washington State. The stars came out as we drove back down the mountain, watching carefully for deer or elk on the move at dusk. An elk weighs about a ton and can destroy a vehicle if you hit one. The trick is to watch for the reflections of their eyes beside the road, which has been my job as passenger since I was six. The view opens wide up to the south where a low earthen berm makes a reservoir. Below the dam is a parking area, which was empty at night. It's not a trailhead or a scenic area, just a county lot, busy with anglers when we passed in the morning. We decided to pull over for some proper stargazing. We had not seen any traffic, so we were safe to lay out flat and ogle the whole sky. We laid on the pavement in front of the car where anyone could see us if they randomly pulled up or drove by. I had just got comfy using my arms under my head. We'd been laying there for perhaps two minutes. What happened next I cannot explain by any rational, natural means. It freaks me out to think about it. Just above and very near uphill of me, from the woods across the road, came loud and distinctly the most artificial, out-of-place noise. It was a single, clear, sort of plastic pop, like the sound of opening a Tupperware lid or unsealing a jar. Precise, deliberate, with suction. A pop like that, but much louder, from about chest height. Not woodsy, not normal. Every hair on my body raised up and my brain went into flight mode. We both sat instantly upright, not saying a word or even looking at each other, just jumped in the car with no pretense of calm. Of course, we looked around us as we exited the lot. Everything looked exactly the same. When we pulled round, no eyes showed as our headlights crossed the spot where that noise definitely came from. After driving far and fast from that horrible, wrong sound, he finally spoke to ask me if I heard that too. In case anyone asks, from me the tree line began uphill to the right across two lanes, maybe 20 feet away. The underbrush is thick hazelnut runners, bushes and knee-high blackberry brambles, even just off the country road. However, the nearest trees are not wide only about 30 years old, planted after the eruption. The dam rose behind us, still water almost to the fishing spots on top. The lot and open area below the berm met trees on the left side, several hundred feet away, on the other end of the dam. There are no buildings or houses, 
not any people or streetlights. It was clear and especially bright by the water. There was moonlight enough to see very easily in any direction once our eyes adjusted. It was before 10 p.m., a gorgeous summer night, hardly a breeze. One could smell fresh water, the different trees. I've lived in similar woods, just for the record, and feel at home even at night. My fella was familiar with the road and the area. I had no reason to feel unsafe, but as my father's daughter I always checked the perimeter, of course. We're both hunters, used to listening for game. We made plenty of noise getting out of the car. Hiking since then we've seen mountain lions way too close in Oregon and Washington. He once saw a bear in daylight. It ran away, making lots of noise through the brush. Neither predator made any cry and both moved away from the people. We did not run on those occasions. Other smaller animals would likely move away when we jumped up, or its eyes would shine in the headlights watching us leave. No animal I have heard of in the PNW makes that noise. The sound came chest level, very near and just uphill across the road. A figure of bear would be on the ground, a mountain lion in the trees, and a person lit in moonlight would be visible that close, or at least seen in the silhouette of headlights. I'd like a natural, rational explanation. We are confident, sane adults and stone-cold sober when we both heard it and ran off. Fear is not a voluntary reaction. I'm still scared typing this now. There was no change in air pressure, light or temperature, just an instant electric fear. The feeling did not shake for many miles. We still have no better way to describe what we call the outside Tupperware noise. I've looked into folklore, animals, and history of the mountain and found nothing to explain this very particular sound. I've also asked folks who spend time on St. Helens, finding no similar experiences. My fella casually says just now, maybe it was a cougar. But unless the big cat brought a container for leftovers, I disagree. My family is all from Mexico. We are from Durango, Mexico, and to be honest, going to the little town we are from, it's always scary. No matter who you talk to, they have one of the scariest stories you can imagine. In that little town we live in, there's witches, gnomes, but probably the most scary thing that almost everyone there, especially the old people talk about, is La Ilorona or the weeping woman. She is a ghost or evil spirit that takes kids away if they're out at night, so the parents say. That's what we were told as kids, until I personally experienced it. I live in Gainesville, Georgia, but we do go visit Durango a lot, so the second day we were there, it was around 1 a.m. and a lot of the family was outside, enjoying each other's company. While all the kids played, I was like nine years old and there was like seven of us, I somehow got separated from my cousins and out of nowhere I felt that feeling that I was being watched. So I froze and the hair on the back of my neck stood up and I couldn't run, I couldn't move. 
So when I tell you I heard something that I will never forget, I heard children, I heard laughing, and I know it wasn't my family or my cousins. I felt it was not something living. I don't know how to explain it, but I felt like it wasn't from this world and felt like I wanted to die out of fear. Still frozen there, praying inside my head and hearing the kids' voices and what I heard was kids skipping and singing, starting to fade, thinking it was over. I started to have the worst feeling, though. It was only the beginning, because all of a sudden I heard a woman crying, but at the same time screaming for her kids, crying nonstop begging for her kids to come back to her. The worst echo, ice-cold scream, a feeling I hope I never feel. Only God knows what it took for me to move and run. When I got to my grandma's house, they said that I looked pale and exhausted, but they knew what I had heard because they heard it too. Everyone was heading inside and getting ready for bed. Now, a 27-year-old man with two kids, I really hesitated going back to the town where I was born. Thank you, Weird Darkness, for giving me an opportunity to tell my story. I have so many stories from me and my family to the point I could write a book as thick as a Harry Potter book. Thanks again. Really love your podcast and not even looking for any more because it doesn't get better than yours. I'd really like to hear you talk about Mexican urban legends. There are plenty of scary things going on in the movie The Exorcist. Over the years, numerous stories have circulated that the production itself was cursed, plagued by strange accidents and occurrences. The set caught fire. Ellen Burstyn suffered a back injury during a stunt. Multiple cast members' loved ones died. Things got bad enough that a priest was asked to perform an actual exorcism on the production. I spoke about many of these in a previous episode of Weird Darkness, which I will link to in the show notes. And some of these stories are true. Others might be a bit on the more fanciful side. And yet perhaps the most terrifying thing about The Exorcist is that a real-life killer, convicted of a slaying but who may have claimed six additional lives, appears as an extra in the movie. Paul Bateson was working as an X-ray technician at the New York University Medical Center where Dr. William Friedkin shot the famous scene of Linda Blair as Reagan undergoing a carotid angiography procedure. Looking for a bit of realism, Friedkin used an actual neuropsychiatric surgeon and his team for the shoot. The surgeon's assistant was none other than Paul Bateson. Six years after the release of the film, Bateson would find himself at the center of a very different type of horror story, one in which he played the role of killer. Bateson was arrested in March of 1979 for the murder of film critic Addison Verrill. According to Bateson's testimony, he had picked up Verrill at a gay bar in Greenwich Village and gone back to Verrill's apartment with him, where the two had sex. Bateson then crushed Verrill's skull with a skillet and proceeded to stab his victim numerous times. Bateson never gave a motive for the brutal crime. Verrill's murder, however, may have been just the tip of the iceberg. 
While he was awaiting trial at Rikers Island, Bateson began to brag about other murders he had committed. He said that he had picked up gay men and murdered them just for fun, that he had chopped up their bodies, put the pieces in plastic trash bags, and dumped the remains in the Hudson River. It didn't take long for the police to suspect that they had actually captured a serial killer. In 1977 and 1978, New York's LGBT community was terrorized by a series of brutal murders in which the bodies of gay men were found in the Hudson River, mutilated, chopped up, and bagged, just as Bateson would later describe. The condition of the bodies made identification virtually impossible, but clothing items and tattoos allowed the police to link the bodies to the city's LGBT community. At least six such bodies were ultimately uncovered, though the killer may have claimed additional victims. The killings became known as the bag murders, and sometimes by more derogatory terms, but no killer was identified until Paul Bateson was arrested for the murder of Addison Verrill. When William Friedkin learned that a suspected serial killer had appeared in his film The Exorcist, the director visited Paul Bateson in prison. Following that interview, Friedkin signed on to direct the 1980 film Cruising, in which Al Pacino plays a cop who goes undercover to track down a killer targeting gay men, a killer who follows much of the same M.O as the bag murders, to which Paul Bateson had confessed. Bateson is even said to have served as an uncredited consultant on the film. Though the police took Bateson's confession at face value, there wasn't enough physical evidence to link him to the bag murders, so he was only charged with the murder of Addison Verrill. Bateson was sentenced to 20 years to life in jail. He was released in 2004 and is now said to live somewhere in upstate New York. As to whether Bateson actually committed all of the bag murders, or indeed any of the other killings to which he has been tentatively linked, we may never know. But the man who appeared in a brief scene in one of the scariest movies ever made certainly has at least one death on his conscience, and who knows how many more. So the next time you cue up The Exorcist, just remember, the film may be fictional, but it contains one scene in which the darkness is all too real. Keep listening, there's more Weird Darkness to come. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the paranormal audiobook Your Haunted Lives Revisited by G. Michael Vasey. This collection of mystifying, scary, real-life ghost stories are true tales of horrifying encounters with the supernatural and paranormal. They include visits from terrifying entities, haunted houses, strange and scary poltergeists, attempted possession, Ouija board nightmares, evil demonic forces, haunted cemeteries, haunted places, and much, much more. They will chill you to the bone. These are supplemented with true stories of the editor's own strange and scary experiences. This terrific, terrifying collection of true spooky stories of the paranormal will keep you looking over your shoulder and wide awake. Your Haunted Lives Revisited by G. Michael Vasey, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. 
Get the audiobook free by signing up for a 30-day free trial of Audible and also hear a free sample of the audiobook on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. The tradition of the ghost marriage is one that supposedly stretches back to the first imperial dynasty of China, the Qin Dynasty, dating from the years 221 BC to 206 BC. The most comprehensive early records of the practice, however, appear to come from the following dynasty, the Han, 206 BC to 220 AD. The purpose of the tradition is to ensure that if a man or woman dies young and unmarried, they should still travel to the afterlife with a spouse, thus protecting both the name of their living family and guaranteeing company for the deceased in the next world. The most common form of ghost marriage was to wed a dead man to a dead woman, whether or not they had been previously engaged. The ritual, however, went beyond just ensuring a partner for the deceased men and women. According to legend, if someone passed away and was not given a proper ghost wedding, he or she would haunt the family home until such an arrangement was made. In haunting the family, the younger generations were at risk for a downfall in their family name and fortune. Thus, the wedding was not merely for the assurance of the dead, but equally important, sometimes more so, for the sake of the remaining living family members. Yet a marriage between two deceased people was not the only type of ghost marriage. Interestingly, both participants did not actually have to be deceased. It was also traditional that if the male spouse died young, his fiancée could decide to go through with the wedding anyway, with another person standing in for him during the ceremony. Though the man was deceased, the woman would be given a home and protection by his extended family, and thus the woman would not be at risk for never marrying, something highly looked down upon in ancient Chinese culture. However, if a woman were to die young and unwed, she could not be given a proper funeral or spirit tablet, and that was the responsibility of the husband's family and never of her birth family. A living man could also go through the same ghost marriage if his bride prematurely died, yet his marital status had no importance on whether he could be properly buried upon his own early demise. There is much less evidence of ghost marriages occurring between a living man and his dead bride, as protection in death as well as a wider range of freedoms in life existed for a man, regardless if he were single or married. China was, and is not, the only culture to have practiced this tradition of ghost marriage. In World War I, a similar practice was adopted in France, as women who had lost their fiancés to the war still wished to marry them, and thus did so by proxy. It continued 40 years later and came to be known as posthumous marriage, after a tragic dam break resulted in a woman begging to gain permission to wed the fiancé who had died in the accident. Since then, the practice has become protected under French marriage laws and can still be granted for a variation of reasons. Other cultures are also known to have later adopted the custom, most notably some tribes from the country of Sudan. In the Nuer tribe, 
it was commonly the brother of the groom who replaced the dead fiancé in the wedding ceremony as a stand-in, though the brother would have to engage with his brother's wife as her true husband. Therefore, if any children were to come from the union of the brother of the dead groom and the wife, those children would be considered the offspring of the dead man, not those of the living brother. Although the concept of ghost marriage seems like a strange tradition to those who first hear about its practice, it is seemingly much more common than one would think. It represents a level of devotion to the deceased partner of the living spouse in the present day, somewhat overshadowing its initial intention of protection in ancient China. The transformation of the practice has evolved with time outside of China, despite that it still remains in its traditional form, sometimes illegally, within the rural regions of China itself. Recently, there have been documented cases of deceased women, in particular, dug up from their graves and sold to be ghost brides in a form of illegal trade. First Post reported, for example, that Shanghai's Hongtong County had at least three dozen thefts of female corpses from 2013 to 2016. It is believed the bodies were taken as brides for deceased men. They explain the modern procedure for the ghost wedding, writing, In ghost marriage rituals, female skeletons are reinforced with steel wires and clothed before they are buried alongside dead bachelors as ghost brides. Although the government essentially banned the practice in 1949, rural Chinese people, especially those living in Shanghai, Henan, and Shanghai provinces, continued the ritual. For a time, it was more common for the body of a corpse bride to be replaced with a picture or dummy made with paper or dough. But beliefs that the representational dough brides would not be enough to ward off bad luck means that people are still stealing female corpses and selling them to the families of deceased men, often for high prices. For example, one family paid 180,000 yen, or about 27,000 US dollars, for a corpse bride for their dead bachelor son. There are even matchmaking companies set up for families to pair dead bachelors with a woman's corpse. Tampa Bay's Sunshine Skyway Bridge doesn't look haunted, but don't let its looks fool you. Dozens of ghostly tales surround the Tampa landmark, which has been the site of two devastating accidents and over 200 suicides. Do the victims of these tragedies haunt the bridge today? The original two-lane skyway first opened in 1954, and officials built an addition in 1971. Aside from a few jumpers, all went well with the Skyway until two traumatic events in 1980. On January 28, 1980, a buoy tender and a tanker collided while attempting to pass beneath the bridge. The accident killed 23 servicemen. On May 9, 1980, a freighter collided with one of the Skyway's support columns, sending a portion of the bridge crashing into the bay eight vehicles plummeted into the water, including a Greyhound bus full of college students. Thirty-five people died in the collapse. 
After the two accidents, the original Skyway badly needed replacing, and officials opened the current Skyway in 1987. While there have been no accidents like those in 1980, the Skyway ranks fourth in the nation for number of bridge jumps. To date, over 200 people have leapt from the Skyway, which is 197 feet above the water. Some live. Most die. In the 1960s and 70s, motorists regularly phoned authorities to report seeing a young woman preparing to jump from the bridge. However, investigators never found the woman or a body. Another legend involves a beautiful hitchhiker who disappears. The troubled young woman reportedly sobs as the summit of the bridge draws near, causing the concerned driver to turn and console her. However, the woman vanishes before the car reaches the top. Motorists have spotted the hitchhiker on both the old bridge and the new, though no one knows who she is. Is she the ghost of a young woman who once jumped from the bridge, or merely an urban legend akin to Chicago's Resurrection Mary? Legend has it that ghostly vehicles also haunt the Skyway Bridge. Parts of the original bridge now serve as piers, which are popular places to fish. According to one story, a group of men were fishing off the southbound pier when they saw an old model greyhound drive by. The passengers on the bus were staring blankly ahead, except for one woman who smiled and waved. The date was May 9, 1990, the 10th anniversary of the freighter collision. The sound of screams and squealing brakes have also been known to shatter the pier's early morning silence. It seems not all of the Skyway ghosts remain on the bridge. A paranormal diving team investigated the water under the Sunshine Skyway Bridge and spotted a weird, unexplained light phenomenon. Could the light be related to one or both of the 1980 tragedies? Is the Sunshine Skyway Bridge truly haunted? While the idea might seem preposterous by the light of day, a late-night drive across the bridge might just change your mind. The ongoing saga of the mystery booms being heard across the United States continues, and possibly have taken a turn for the spooky. Over the past year, unexplained explosions and booming noises have been shaking homes and terrifying residents in many rural parts of the continental U.S. While the vast majority of these anomalous booms are left unexplained, the FBI has taken a particular interest in mysterious explosion noises recently heard across rural Pennsylvania, just north of Philadelphia. Does this mean some sort of sleeper cell terrorist group might be practicing with improvised explosives? Given the craters found alongside rural roads, though, who knows? To add more mystery and a healthy dose of conspiracy to these recent booms in Pennsylvania, though, News reports suggest the ever-elusive and ominous men in black might now be on the case, doing what they do best, creeping out bewildered eyewitnesses. Is there more to this case than meets the eye? 
speaking to The Intelligencer, a newspaper covering the Upper Bucks County area of Pennsylvania where these mystery booms took place, residents described the kinda spooky experience they had following one of the recent unexplained booms. One resident who had asked that her name not be used claims two eerily familiar-sounding and unidentified agents of some kind showed up at her door unannounced, questioning her in a somewhat threatening manner. Two men in dark suits and dark car were banging on our front door and back door at the time until I answered. I could see they had badges under their coats, but they didn't identify themselves. It was unnerving, then they left. What should be made of the appearance of the MIB? Is there more to this case than some backwoods paramilitary group or lone wolf testing explosives on the side of empty highways? Were these men in black merely men who appeared to be wearing black working on behalf of an undisclosed organization, like the NSA or CIA? Or is something spookier afoot in rural Pennsylvania? As with all things men in black, we will likely never know. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you like the show, please share a link to this episode on all your social media, tell your friends about the show, and please leave a rating and review. I might read your review here in the podcast. Amber Vandesal dropped me a note saying, I've been listening to Weird Darkness for a few months now and have fallen in love with it. It's perfect for listening on my long drives to school and work every day, and even great for walking late at night in the cemetery I live next to. It's the perfect blend between the paranormal and the strange. I love being part of the Weirdo family. Nurse Curtis says, Awesomeness! Out of all the weird and scary podcasts out there, this one is by far the absolute best. I especially like how you bring us back out of the darkness with the Bible verses. Please, sir, keep up the good work. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness and early access to the Weird But True video series on YouTube. Also, exclusive content, such as chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. In fact, the novel Into Darkness that I've been narrating over the last few months is now finally available online to purchase, so this coming Monday I will be removing that from Patreon. So if you are a patron, you better listen to all those chapters now before they disappear. I'm currently narrating the audiobook The Chilling True Terror of the Black Eyed Kids by G. Michael Vasey, and I'll be uploading chapters of that as I record them. You can become a patron right now for as little as five bucks a month at WeirdDarkness.com. And a big welcome to our newest Weirdo family member, Matthew Nowick. Thanks for becoming a patron, Matthew. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free Weird Darkness mobile app, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo family social group, get stories that I didn't use in the podcast, and more. There's something new posted every day at WeirdDarkness.com. This week's Twitter winner is Nick Merchant. He won an entire Weird Darkness prize pack with a t-shirt, mug, stickers, tote bag, and a notebook, so congratulations, Nick. 
Now, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, well, the Twitter contest is ongoing. I'm giving away Weird Darkness merchandise every week now, and it's free and easy to get your name in the random drawing each week. To get registered, just follow Weird Darkness on Twitter and then retweet the posts as you see them. You can retweet as many Weird Darkness posts as you like. In fact, the more you retweet the Weird Darkness tweets, the greater your chance of winning that week's prize. I've got a new drawing every Monday, and uh, next week the winner's going to receive a Weird Darkness throw pillow. So if you are a Twitter user, jump online, follow Weird Darkness, and start retweeting if you want to win. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The real-life killer who appeared in The Exorcist was written by Oren Gray. Doppelganger, Ghost, or Imagination was written by Rachel Hendowski. My Guardian Angel was written by Jackie. La Ilorona was written by Freddie Alarcon and submitted directly to WeirdDarkness.com. Tampa's Haunted Sunshine Skyway Bridge was posted at GhostsAndGhouls.com. Ghosts of the Diamonds Restaurant was written by Troy Taylor. Ghost Marriages was written by Riley Winters. The Wineville Chicken Coop Murders was written by Gina DeMuro. Unnatural Sounds on Mount St. Helens was written by Bettina Marie. And Men in Black and Unexplained Booms was written by Brett Tingley. Music in this episode was provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we are coming out of the dark, remember Luke 10, 19. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Mm-hmm.